Having a Gas With is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for advertising, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Rory Sutherland, the Vice Chairman of Ogilvy UK. Rory is a dazzling intellectual, and for this reason, his public speaking engagements draw huge crowds, and he has a regular column in The Spectator. So you were on the precipice of telling me about a debate in the uh, Ogilvy office, is that right? Well, it's very interesting, which is, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time wondering. Um, what I always think is that the idea that good ideas spread and bad ideas die out uh, is fundamentally over-optimistic. Um, so just to give an example, the wine box was a really good idea, okay? You can have one glass without ruining the rest. Um, it makes perfect sense to have a wine box at home. It doesn't use any glass. It's probably recyclable. Um, uh, keeps the wine in better condition. Generally, everything is in favour of the wine box, except for the fact that you can't really take it to a party. It yeah. would be weird, okay? But the wine box basically died out. It's slightly being revived now, but it died out not for any good reason, just simply in the same way that dealy bobbers die out. You get a brief period of novelty and then something fails to catch on. And um, one of the things that's fascinating me for ages, which I always call the sort of Fermat's last theorem of behavioral science, is why the hell video conferencing was so slow to take, to take off. And, and in general, remote working, there's a kind of weird hostility to remote working, which in view of the cost savings, that can be entailed doesn't really make any sense. I mean, I noticed that Amazon's closed all its call centers for um, COVID-19 reasons. And it struck me, why the hell was Amazon having call centers in the first place? You know, it's a job you can do and be monitored doing from home perfectly well. So do you think it's the, these exactly these kind of enormous culture shift uh, events like COVID-19 that just pushes everyone into a new paradigm? Well, yeah, I think it's possible because when you've got everybody doing something simultaneously, quite a lot of benefits suddenly emerged. Now, one of my theories is that there's, there was a problem with the development of video conferencing, which is while it was novel, it was crap. And when it stopped being crap, it was no longer novel. And so <clears throat> if you imagine a different world where Zoom, this wouldn't have been technologically possible, where Zoom had come along fully formed in 1997, Okay, people would have said, "Okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to really reinvent how we do things. This is extraordinary." But the trouble was, all the early manifestations, not helped by Microsoft crapping on Skype, which I think they did. Um, all the early manifestations were pretty unsatisfactory. So when you had a video call, what was apparent about it was the flaws and failings, not the advantages. That's a. But, I mean. It, it really it really fascinates me this because a friend of mine who made a lot of money in the sort of early dot com years uh, 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 in actually he made a lot of money in tech before nineteen ninety six when the internet kind of got serious and he immediately went and bought land overlooking Lake Tahoe I think because he said right okay once this internet thing comes in no one's going to want to live in a huge city the best land to buy is land with a really great view. Absolutely, yeah. Have you have you seen the uh, have you seen the Steve Jobs biopic? Um, I have, yeah. 
at the very beginning you see Arthur C. Clarke saying, uh, eventually computers will be able to fit inside someone's home and we will no longer need to work in cities. A lot of people prophesied this. Now, it, it's worth remembering, it's mostly, as with Arthur C. Clarke, older people who don't want to live in cities for other reasons. Equally, I don't know where you live, by the way. Do you live in London? Uh, no, I'm in Manchester, so I'm in right Manchester. In of course you are, you're in Manchester, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, an interesting question is, certainly if you take mega cities like London, if you had a three- or four-day week in the office and then four days to spend where you liked, would people be quite so keen to live in Shoreditch if, you, if you're... If you had a, not not a four day weekend, but effectively the other four days when you weren't in working in London, you could be in kind of Brighton or you know or you know Margate or Hearn Bay or whatever you wanted to do. And my hunch is that there'd be a, quite a pronounced exodus if you shorten the working the, the physical working week by one day. What do you think about uh, people's propensity to do work when they aren't in a social working environment, so if they're in their own homes? It seems to vary quite a lot, A, by the nature of the job and B, by the nature of the person. So it's actually, I think it's a two-way street. I mean, David Ogilvy famously wrote that he never wrote a single thing in the office. He never wrote an ad or a book or an article. He, all, he had to go home to do that stuff because in the office there were too many distractions. And I think there are certain types of work, writing being the critical one, or what you might call deep, prolonged thought, um, uh, where actually you're better off at home than you are in the office, genuinely. Is, is that where you do your writing when you're writing? Yeah, I, d yeah. I don't write anything in the office. I agree with David Ogilvy there. I, I, I find it impossible um, because weird, I, I can't quite explain it, but you know how cats, before they go to bed, do that weird business where they kind of rotate round and round in the same spot? Yes. In a weird kind of way, before you can get writing, you need to perform sort of similar kind of rituals and practices, which look a bit absurd in a public space, possibly, or just require a degree of solitude. Yes, was it Benjamin Franklin who took what he called air baths, where he would uh, sit without any clothes on at the beginning of the day? Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And so that kind of thing, you know, whatever helps. It, and this varies a lot, by the way, which is some some people demand absolute silence. Now, I'm not remotely bothered by noise. I could actually, you know, I could work in a crowded cafe or restaurant, but I couldn't work where I was surrounded by a lot of people I knew or where people would come up and talk to you, understandably, because the trouble with email is you can't tell whether someone's doing something deadly serious and writing a you know, uh, you know, a really complicated um, proposal or whether they're just replying by going fine. So, um, yeah, I've, I, 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 for all sorts of reasons, I don't think I, I've never read a spec, never written a spectator article in the office, always at the weekend or in the evening, uh, never written, uh, no, never written any journalistic stuff at all uh, in the office. Um, if I have to write a, um, a uh, you know, any kind of talk or article or new business proposal have to go home. Um, now, this varies a lot. I mean, just to some people are massively sensitive to noise and I'm not particularly bothered. Um, but, um, so, yeah, I mean, I would argue that, I mean, quite a lot. I, th I think my point is it's not really, it's not really about getting rid of the office altogether. And that was where, that was where I think people got it wrong. Um, in that there's still a need for both random bumping into people, random conversation, serendipitous conversation, and there's still a lot of room for meeting people face to face. 
all that's changed there is that the ratio has changed in terms of uh, two things. One, I think everybody understands time. So they go time at work uh, and then free time. Okay. But there's a similar concept which nobody ever mentions, which is called free place. Which is you may be working and your employer may have uh, control over your time, but they don't have a control over your place. Yes. But I think there are probably a lot of people, you know, parents of young children. Um, you know, if you, I don't know, if you live in Brighton and you travel into London, your kids are at primary school in Brighton. I would guess as a mum or dad, you'd feel a degree of anxiety being 45 miles away from your kids when they're six. You've got a reasonably uh, sizable commute, haven't you, when you're going into Ogilvy? It's it's actually not too gruesome, to be honest. I mean, I, it, it's uh, I can do it in about thirty five minutes. It'll be even faster when they introduce this new train service. Um, but so it, it's it's pretty it's pretty easy. Um, and I also tend to go in at a weird time so that um, uh, you can work on the train and the train's half empty, so that suits me fine. Um, but um, uh, no, I mean I think. Um, Giving people, you know, just as you give people time where they have discretion, I think you have to give them some discretion over place if people are to work at full effect. Because A, the, the open plan office makes make certain kinds of work difficult um, for certain people. Yeah. Then there's the fact that I one of the interesting things is, of course, in a weird way, um, work, not working from home or not having flexible working seems more weird to me than it does to you. Because when I first started working in 1988, 90% of what you did had to be done in the office. So you could work with a pen and paper at home. I mean this in 88, okay? You didn't really have a home computer. You might have a typewriter. Uh, you didn't really have a pen. You, had a, you could have a pen and paper at home and you could make phone calls. Those are the business tools you had. Um, for, for various reasons, making phone calls, you know, you might have had an international conference call once every month or six weeks or something. That was it, basically. And then when you did, by the way, if you, if you had an international call from home, uh, it then cost 17 quid and your phone bill wasn't itemised. Uh, so um, uh, as a result, you, um, uh, you ended up, uh, you know, it, it was a pretty expensive thing to do. Everything else. So when people called you, the phone that rang was your desk phone in your office. Okay, your faxes came to the office. Your post came to the office. Um, uh, your um, just just to go on. Uh, what else would it be? Uh, your photocopier was in the basement of the office. If you needed to present pr pr uh, produce a deck, uh, the computer equipment necessary to do it, and the acetates were all in the office. So you're in the office 95% of the time because other than going to external meetings, that was where you had to be. Now, whatever that ratio is, and obviously it varies by job, um, it used to be 95-5. It's not like that anymore remotely. You know, it's way below 80% and probably below 60% in some cases with video conferencing arguably below 40 percent of your actual activity requires you to be in a specific place so no doubt it'll vary from sector to sector and workplace to workplace because i'm quite close to someone who's a sort of upper mid-level civil servant in in one of the uh ministries in whitehall and um he was saying i had a phone call with him and he said well it's all right for you you work in media you can all do this working from home but we have so many people that a video conference with all of them is 
uh, unworkable and there are some places where you need to be in an office environment so what, what, what do you think about the various sectors I mean no yeah, I, creative, I, mean, yeah. I, I found that for the civil service uh, the the reason with the civil service is with working from home is often security because you know 99% of what I deal with isn't really sensitive and so you know you know IT will make it a little bit difficult by demanding a VPN or this or that or the other but it isn't really a big deal um, and uh, 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 so it depends on which branch of the civil service is in, but in things like the Department for Transport, where people are writing proposals, and um, then, um, by the way, of course, it's worth remembering that if even if you can't work from home, he benefits from people working from home because his journey to work is less crowded. And it's a bit like COVID-19, which is anybody who can stay, you know, out of the way, the best thing they can do is stay out of the way because then you leave the public realm free for people who need to move about. So do you have this uh, sense that we've, uh, all, that for a while now, we've all been operating in the b business framework that you were just describing from 1988, but doing things we could all be doing at home? Yeah, I mean, I mean the very simplest thing, I mean, even if you include micro-flexibility, okay, I, I genuinely say to my staff, look, there's no point in struggling in on a crowded tube and paying a peak time fare if the first two hours in the office you're going to spend doing email or working on a deck on a screen that would look exactly the same if you were at home or, or even is below. is the same screen you're bringing your it is, it is you're bringing the screen with you which makes the whole thing even more absurd when you think <laughs> about it uh, you know you're i mean you're carrying your email from home in order to do it visibly in the office rather than invisibly and this doesn't make any sense at all and particularly because I mean, one of the points I think people have noticed during lockdown is when you do work remotely, you gain about two to three productive hours a day. Yes, uh, yes, I noticed that. Yeah, and yeah, so, I think... mean, I'll be absolutely blunt with you. I got up at eight thirty, okay, <laughs> for this call, and I made breakfast, um, and I made coffee, okay, and I got dressed. Now, you know, I didn't get dressed with the same elaborateness I would have done <laughs> were I going into an office. But again, I didn't have to think about charging my phone, picking up my phone, remembering my pass card for work. I once worked out that in order to get to work, before you can start work, you need to go through something like 47 mental operations just to get started in the office. Dramatic when you work inefficient. Home, it's about six. Yeah, yeah. So there's an efficiency thing as well. There's like a, oh, CP, huge, huge a CPU operation. In terms of time. It, with the additional thing, by the way, which is if you do travel into the office later, the train's prob or even the tube, but certainly the train is empty enough to work on. So you can't get shit done if you travel in at eight thirty in the morning. You're just standing there. Whereas if you travel in at ten thirty in the morning, it's um, you get a table basically. Um, so, so I mean, it, it, it is just interesting because now I wondered whether when this is all over, there's huge pressure to revert. Well, A, you can't revert because if everybody goes back to the office, you can't practice social distancing in the office. B, I think a lot of people have noticed that in some ways, particularly international business, I mean, there's a guy at WPP who has to go once every two weeks. He has to fly to New York for a three-hour meeting. Oh, wow. And he said to me, I'm not doing that anymore. There's also a guy I spoke to at UBS who said he has an absolutely sort of tyrannical colleague who is, you know, absolutely, you know, one of those people who, if you're not in the office by 7.30, he comments. You know, and um, uh, 
the interesting thing was he suddenly had this epiphany and just said, there's no way I'm doing this shit anymore. I don't want yeah. to have my staff, you know, hauling ass across London every day just so they can talk to me. Um, yeah. I'll do it remotely. So do you think this COVID-19 thing, there's a, there's a lot of points to pick up on and shooting off in several directions, but generally speaking, the COVID-19 is going to be transformational in many ways. And uh, obviously there's constant calls to return to normal and then there's correlating uh, insistence that we will return to a new normal. But without wanting to put you on the spot for predictions, what are the major things you can see transforming after this that are obvious to you? Um, <clears throat> I think there will be enough pressure now. Um, the problem was working from home or flexible working is a hugely dangerous thing if you're in a minority. And if there's a significant majority or even significant minority who never do it. So all you need is one asshole boss who's insistent on presenteeism. And that's 37 people who can't work from home ever, right? So it was very easy to kill. The other thing is all you need is four arsehole colleagues who always get in at eight because they haven't got any kids, and they've got no other responsibilities, and who whenever they say, oh, he's working from home, use the phrase inaudible inverted commas. <laughs> With raised eyebrows. Yeah. Uh. He's working from home. Yeah. Okay. Um, all you needed was something like that, and then the practice became uh, unattainable, not through any lack of productivity or effectiveness, but simply because of social norm pressure. And um, so it's a really, really interesting question, but I think enough people have probably seen the light that both in terms of um, you know, my argument for Ogilvy is, look, in future, when you have a significant meeting, you have to offer a video conferencing alternative because, you know, you can't have everybody in the meeting who wants to be because it'll be too crowded. In, in any case secondly it's a major it's a major waste of time i mean you know what i notice is i can have this call at nine o'clock you could have had it at eight o'clock i wouldn't have been that bothered by the way whereas if you if you you know if you ask for an eight o'clock meeting in the office oh, fuck it, i'm gonna get up at six you know <laughs> yeah. you know or six in six thirty at the very latest and i'd be kind of oh christ you know actually you do have to get up at six because when you commute it's not just the time of the commute it's the time you've got to allow for shit going wrong so, you know, if you've got any kind of important meeting in the physical space, you've got to add a half hour buffer onto that again, just in case your train gets shat on. So for each individual interaction in the normal world, let's oh. say, there's handles so, on so, side. Yeah, so, so a breakfast meeting, you know, from 8.30 to 10, you know, there was one actually quite interesting, a very interesting person talking. And, you know, I would have been tempted to go to the breakfast, but I actually attended it remotely because it was only remote. Oh, this is a really interesting talk. And then, uh, then by the time the talk finished, it was 9.30, and I'd get on with my working day. Okay, perfectly happy. You know, previously, you'd have to get up at six in the morning, so you're a bit knackered and a bit of a bad mood. Um, and then by the time you got back to the office and finished chatting to a few people and then, you know, you had to get in a taxi, that's half the morning gone. Whereas at this point, it was none of the morning gone. And so no, I think I think the pressure on this just going. Look, I've you know I've seen the light. This is this commuting stuff is bollocks. And um, and also, I mean, okay, so jobs in the media can do it, and other people can't. Well, let's do it then. A, it benefits the people who can't. But B, you know, we're lucky enough, and in some cases, in your case, in your case particularly, shrewd enough to kind of want to do the job which you can do from anywhere. 
Yeah. And you're keen enough in your work that when you get home with a mixing deck, I'm totally outdated my terminology, my apologies. <laughs> no, but, no, there's know, one there, but yeah. <laughs> there is, okay, when you get home with all that kit, you won't immediately start watching, you know, Jeremy Kyle or whatever, not that that's on anymore, no. but, you know, you won't immediately just start watching QVC. You will actually get on with some work. Well, if you're capable of doing that, you deserve to be rewarded for it, both the good fortune and the... Um, uh, you know, and the foresight, I would argue. Yeah, this is interesting. I, I was going to grill you as well as a uh, as a behavioural science. Would you say you're a behavioural science uh, expert or uh, um, observer, certainly, or impresario, depending on how you want to put it? Yeah, I like. I, I, I prefer. Oh, so, sorry, there's someone at the door. I won't be saying it's probably Amazon. It usually is <laughs> these days. Oh, you you going? Are you okay? Yeah, sorry. Um, I'm back again now. Of course. Uh, yeah, I, I do prefer impresario because it's a romantic kind of term. Um, and I was, I was wondering what you think about uh, doomsday prophecies that no one's ever going to shake hands again as a behaviourist. Um, this is a very interesting one. This is really interesting. Um, I, I do worry, I mean, the Behavioural Insights team, and I'm not saying they were totally wrong on this because it's very, very complicated. They suggested you shouldn't lock down too soon because of behavioural fatigue. Um, I don't. I mean, to be honest, I think if you had your time again, you'd lock London down a bit earlier and other places maybe a bit later. Because um, it's very uneven across the UK. One advantage of being a very small country like Ireland is you can kind of take regional action. Um, and probably easier in Germany too, actually. I don't know. But the interesting thing there was that... Um, my, my worry is slightly the opposite, which is we do acquire a kind of mild agoraphobia in that, as someone was saying, you know, you look at television footage of people who go, what are you doing so close? Yes. You know, if you look at old television footage, you're, well, they're far too close together, you know. And um, I do feel mild anxiety if I have to go out, you know, if I had to board a train, I'd feel pretty anxious about it, uh, which is weird, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. you know. And what's also significant is we've all done it simultaneously, because I think we get a bit of this. If you go on holiday to rural France, when you first get back to London, you find the crowding massively frustrating. You know, I, I can't stand this. It's just stupid, you know, because you spent two and a half weeks in the French countryside or somewhere like that. And of course, what's interesting about this is everybody's done the same thing simultaneously. So they'll all be feeling the same way. Um, and I, yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say we'll never shake hands again, but um, there are going to be some really interesting things. So I was talking to people about the prospects for the revival of African safari tourism. And I said, the problem now is, is they're not frightened of Africa. They're not frightened of lions. They're frightened of Heathrow Airport. Absolutely, yeah. What did you make of the, um, the actual government behavioural strategy? Because it looked to me like, well... The problem began to be taken seriously on about the 11th of March, properly, as a, as a nation. And then by the 23rd, the Prime Minister had said, don't go outside for three months. And it, happen it happened astonishingly quickly. You know, what do you make of that nudging everyone's behaviour or almost pushing them into a, a you know, ubiquitous change? One thing, which I think, where I think the government's been a bit unfairly judged, OK, is the mandatory lockdown was, I think, the 23rd, 24th, was it? Yeah. Uh, so that, that was when you mandated it. Mm -hmm. I, I last went into London on the 12th. Okay. Station car parks were half empty. 
from the 12th onwards. When I was in London on the 12th, it was like a ghost town. So there was a substantial pre-lockdown reduction in the volume of movement, which, particularly in London, I think, which probably had an effect. Now, there is the point which is if you lock down people too early and, you know, for the first week, nothing happens. Bear in mind, if you lock down people in sort of East Sussex and places very little affected, they go, well, we can't lose the house. We can't leave the house. But there are only three cases in East yeah. Sussex. <coughs> it, <coughs> it might have begun to seem absurd. Um, and also, I think it's fair to say that in London... Uh, a lot of voluntary action made a difference. I think if people had been flooding flooding around the place in their usual numbers uh, in the sort of 10 days before the lockdown became formal, uh, you might have seen a far worse outbreak. I don't know. I mean, we won't know for a year or so, I suspect, many of this stuff. Many of these things will, you know, uh, will require a huge amount. And even then, it'll be a lot of theory. But um, uh, so... Actually, I mean, also giving people a week mentally to prepare for the idea of being locked down and to make preparation wasn't a totally dumb thing to do. Because if you think about it, OK, what, what happens if you lock down overnight? Will you have people separated from their children or people separated from their wives or whatever? OK, that's no one. No one's going to obey the rules under those circumstances. I was very sympathetic. That government minister who went off to Herefordshire. Um, his wife and children were already there, right? They'd left before the lockdown. He then travelled once to Herefordshire to rejoin his family. I don't think that's unreasonable. He was attacked for that, and people said, I don't think that's unreasonable behaviour at all. I think every human being would do exactly the same thing. If you're, you know, if you're separating from your own wife and children before some crisis, what's he supposed to do? Stay in London on his own, you know? Yes, have a family remotely. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and I I you know I thought that was I, I thought that was completely unfair criticism, and I, you know, but besides, it wasn't as if it was just his holiday home. He grew up in Herefordshire. It's you know it's his it's his main family home where he plans to you know live for the rest of his life. It's not some sort of you know oh let's go down to the seaside and put a burden on the Cornish NHS. Um, and so there's this really interesting question I think that arises, which is you know. Yeah, I think I think you could have done. I think you could have ordered um, you could have ordered PPE uh, equipment earlier. They probably made a gaffe there. Equally, there was loads of PPE equipment which apparently was out of date. By which I mean beyond its best before date. Now that's a slight bureaucratic problem because, to be honest, it's probably ninety eight percent as good as you know brand new stuff. Now, yes. I would have made a call there which says, if you can't use in-date stuff, use out-of-date stuff. But, of course, you've got this fear of Daily Mail thing, which is one story which goes, nurses are forced to use out-of-date face masks. And, you know, regardless of the actual implications of this, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just saying that um, sometimes the kind of bureaucratic rulemaking uh, can lead to decisions which are fine under perfect circumstances, but which are pretty dumb in cases of crisis. Um, yeah, I, and, yeah, the, I think. Um, I mean, I, it's difficult. It's very difficult to say because what was weird is that Italy got hit earlier. We did have a kind of warning with Italy, but you would you wouldn't have expected Northern Italy to get hit first. You would have expected somewhere really international like London or New York. 
to get it first in a way, wouldn't you? Not that Milan's not international, but it was kind of towns around Milan. Yes, it was very small towns it in Northern small Italy. Town. What the yeah. fuck's going on? I have no clue. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, your conventional explanation would be, okay, the greater the volume of foreign travellers passing through, the more large airports you have, the more likely it is that these things are going to spread. So there's something really unusual. Someone said that a football match, there was a Spanish-Italian football match, Valencia playing somewhere or other, and there's a general sort of school of thought which said that might have been a sort of super-spreading event. But it's really weird, isn't it? I mean, it is... Yeah, I, um, as I, I also noticed, because you, um, you were mentioning frustrations there with uh, public perception of what's been going on and the fact that, well, in terms of government policy, you can almost never keep people happy anyway, that it's always going to be ripe for criticism. I noticed that for basically the last five years, rightly so, there's been uh, a call for less and less disposable slash reusable plastic and then as soon as this came along there's a demand for more uh, and more reusable more disposable plastic i know i know don't yes. and the irony is uh, yeah starbucks i think serves everything in china now where it's reopened has to serve everything in paper cups um but it's very difficult to make predictions because when when both when this happens um generally you could look at history and say the british have a pretty good record of kind of doing what you're told it's not quite germany but equally um you know now that will vary by age group a bit which it always would i imagine i i bet there were teenagers going out in the blitz and shit like that you know um and it also vary a little bit by locale and so on um uh, but uh, i mean you have the advantage here, and this is where the line was clever, which was, um, uh, you know, stay home, save lives, protect the NHS, which is that you had a double reason for doing it, which it wasn't just your own self-interest, which drove some of the behaviour, let's be honest, you know. A lot of elderly people locked down very early because they said, I can't take this risk, you know. If I, if I get this, given my underlying health conditions, yeah. I might actually snuff it. I'm not taking, you know, one in ten risk of... Well, I'm not even taking a one in ten risk of hospitalisation, to be absolutely honest. Um, uh, but there was also a combined, what you might call, higher-order public benefit and selfish benefit. Um, I mean, you could argue the selfish benefit was self-evident, and so you needed to slightly magnify... Because, you know, to prevent you looking like a coward, the point was I'm actually staying home for the good of other people. Um, and uh, <clears throat> to be honest, this is an unfashionable view, but we're slightly helped in this in Britain by the unpleasant nature of British tabloid journalism, yeah. which under normal circumstances loves nothing better than to shame people, which can be a bit annoying. But in cases where you need kind of national collective action, the tabloid's shaming skill set is actually quite useful. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? The, the ability to go, you know, look at these people. They are idiots. They are a disgrace to their, you know. That's not a, that's not an, um, a, a worthless talent, actually. Well, it's almost that that's initially the, the purpose that journalism served. So the cliched view would be to speak truth to power, but I suppose the more nuanced view would be... Uh, to hold people accountable, kind of like being a second opposition, not in the chamber. Yeah, but, and also, yeah, and to sort of enforce moral norms, I guess. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. But um, there, I suppose, in the 90s in particular, the, the 90s for some reason is very 
closely associated with tabloid journalism and red tops. Um, the the defining feature of of tabloid journalism just became, as you've said, the shaming and uh, and and sort of muckraking. But um, on a, uh, a sort of sidestep here, something I noticed. This is again in terms of public reaction to things. Is ordinarily you would not expect more left-leaning people politically to be in favour of authoritarian uh, rules, authoritarian behaviour. Uh, but I heard previously that in a prevalence of infectious disease can can increase favorability of authoritarian behavior and people on the uh, who are more left-leaning in my circle almost within two weeks were saying the police need more power they need more power to stop people going out no, uh, there's a very interesting thing which is that there is one theory that there's a correlation between how conservative and generally right-wing you are and kind of germ aversion. Yeah, orderliness, yeah. Uh, and, and so the whole need for sort of cleanliness, orderliness, and, um, uh, uh, you know, a degree of social conformity, uh, which, which, by the way, even if it isn't true, it kind of makes sense, if you see what I mean, in that societies where, uh, you know, people didn't stick to universal rules, it only takes... I mean, what's unusual, I guess, about this kind of thing is... Uh, you know, normally, you know, when we say here's to the crazy ones in the Apple commercial, yes. under conditions of pandemic, for example, uh, it only takes one crazy one to infect everybody else. Yes. So uh, here's not to the crazy ones, here's, here's to the cowardly ones, <laughs> the conformists, the people who stay at home, the people yes. who go, ooh, it looks a bit dangerous out there. Right? And so, so, yeah, I mean... Uh, I'm slightly, by the way, I'm slightly sympathetic um, uh, to an idea that, um, you know, I mean, it also slightly makes you a bit more nationalistic in that people who would have been fervent Remainers, if you said actually, okay, uh, we, you know, the UK has developed a vaccine and we're going to give it to other countries first. Yes. I think you get it, you know. You, yeah. you know, you. I mean, this, by the way, this need, this need for a degree of conformity and order, um, also explains to some extent um, why nationalism, ha or, or let's put it, let's call nationalism by its nicer name, which is localism. It has a point because you can achieve things in terms of uni universal, uniform reaction at a local or national level. I mean, if you notice, EU solidarity and freedom of movement basically fell apart. Suddenly, national borders reasserted themselves. People closed the borders to neighboring countries. People closed their airports to incoming flights. Right. All, all this stuff. Um, does make clear that there are certain things under conditions, particularly under conditions of threat where things don't scale perfectly you know you couldn't i mean you, it, it, you know, if you didn't have strong local powers i don't think you could get people in um just to give an example i'm not sure you could get people in greece to lock down because there'd be an outbreak in um uh malmo okay yes so you know, there is this interesting trade-off between, you know, uh, scale, which brings certain advantages, and uh, uh, and having lots of polycentric um, identities. And that's, that's, where, that's what it comes down to. There's a brilliant comment on this, because I'm very weird on Brexit, by the way. I voted to remain 
I was not remotely concerned by the vote to leave. And I also have the, um, uh, the slightly unusual view, despite the fact that the news covered nothing else for three years, that in the grand scheme of things, it's not actually very important. Uh, in fact, in the grand scheme of things, it might be better um, if a few other countries left as well. I think Italy needs to leave the euro, probably. Okay. Why is that? Is that uh, can you say? Briefly? I think their economy is just, um, uh, you know, I mean. Uh, by the way, this wasn't intentional. I don't think it was planned. But the um, essentially, what the euro does is it keeps the Deutschmark, which doesn't exist anymore, really, really low, so the Germans can export lots of shit. Okay. Uh, the the concomitant problem with that is the Italians, the lira, which doesn't exist anymore, is kept ridiculously high. So the Italians find it really difficult. Okay, um, <clears throat> I mean, uh, and so so I think that currency straitjacket was a dumb. I mean, totally dumb idea. Okay, granted we weren't in it, but it was really really dumb as an idea uh, because that you know. Um, and so, you know, I'm not sure it would be, I'm not sure it'd be all that bad if Italy left and a few other countries left. And um, partly because, uh, by the way, it would just be a healthy thing if countries felt they could leave. Because I think, I think the problem with the EU wasn't the fact that it was a bad idea. It was the fact that everybody thought it was inevitable. Yes. And once you, you stop thinking this thing is inevitable, you start thinking about it more intelligently. So do you think from like a sort of a, a, a nation behavioural perspective, uh, whilst it w may be uh, politically and economically unfeasible in the, in the current state to keep the European Union as a kind of opt-in, opt-out organisation, that might have been what eased tensions about it if people didn't feel like, well, we yeah. voted to leave and now we can't leave. I mean, you could probably achieve a lot of what the EU achieves through simple voluntary coordination. Like, you could say things like, it would be a good idea, wouldn't it, if we all legislated so that mobile phone... Now, there would be cases where this didn't work, because countries would refuse to comply. But um, you, you could have made the entire thing you know, less of a sort of supranational thing, um, and, um, and, and more of a coordinating authority, and achieved much of the same results, I suspect. But, but my other point was, I don't, you know, I genuinely don't think it's that big a deal, because... I don't think that, contrary to what a lot of people think, I don't think scale is, is, is a one-way street. I think when you scale things up, you gain in certain ways, but there are often delayed or hidden costs, which no one talks about. Not, I mean, for example, you know, all those countries who said, wow, we can save 27% on manufacturing costs by moving to China, it looked really clever for eight years until you realise you can't get your shit anymore. But, you know, um, and... and um, I've always been a bit weird about just-in-time manufacturing. I know everybody regards it as automatically wonderful as an idea. But you kind of go, well, consumers don't actually practice just-in-time grocery shopping, do we? We don't go, oh, I feel like a can of Coke. I mean, I guess if you lived right next door to a shop, you might. You go, I feel like a can of Coke, drive off to Sainsbury's, come home, drink it, right? We kind of stockpile a bit of stuff as a bit of a buffer. Yeah. And yeah. we're kind of glad we did. Yeah, and on the China point, I mean, I'm very young and very poorly educated, uh, so I'm prone to saying stupid things. It's basically a massive disclaimer. But uh, I I'm not sure, I can't quite figure out beyond the cost the cost-benefit analysis, why we all thought it was a good idea to outsource all of our manufacturing to what is basically still an adversarial nation. 
no, um, I think that's a, I, I think that's probably a fair point. If there, it, my only other prediction, my prediction about working patterns changing, I'm not. I'm, I've got about fifty percent confidence about that. Um, in the medium term, medium to longer term, uh, certainly it's a genie you wouldn't. You probably can't put back in the bottle completely. Because you know, if I have the right to say, look. Um, what tends to happen is that in, in working from home is the most extrovert person bullies everybody else to be like them because introverts don't bully extroverts. It only happens the other way around. You know, if you go to Everest base camp, you don't get to people going, look, it's terribly dangerous up there. And there's a queue. Why don't we just stay in our tents and read Proust? OK, you don't get that <laughs> right. right. In, but all over the world, you get people going, come on, let's just go to this next hill. Right. And um in this, now, once you have the right to say, uh, look, to be absolutely honest, I don't think you'll go to Frankfurt to this meeting. Can you just patch me in on a video call? And that's considered a normal thing to say. Then once that meeting is now taking place as a video call, three other people are going to go, look, to be absolutely honest, I'm quite busy on Wednesday. Can I, you know, a trip to Frankfurt will be three valuable hours at the price of nine pain in the ass travel hours, you know, where I've got to pack and go to a hotel and work out how the wi-fi works work out how the shower works so you know, all that shit i can do without to be honest um and in the now so now in the case of china what you were undoubtedly doing is you were also handing over a lot of skills it was a total oversimplification to think that all the intelligence lies in design and management and marketing and that manufacturing isn't a sort of transferable skill base and when you've got a lot of very clever manufacturers all in the same place, they can start inventing shit pretty fast. Yes, when you're handing over all the schematics and they're all just building. No, I, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely, you know, they're not, they're not going to go, oh, I'm not paying any attention to what this is. <laughs> and then the other thing is, the, so my other prediction is I think India might do fairly well out of this because India's been unfairly neglected. Uh, it's a democratic country. Uh, it's not really adversarial, um, I think mean, it's fair to say. Um, it, you know, uh, and the other interesting thing with India is that um, it was growing nearly as fast as China under, in some ways, tougher conditions, which suggests the growth is more organic because it was less artificially driven by deliberate sort of intent until recently. And it was growing nearly as fast, but it got about 10% of the attention or 5% of the attention. I don't know why that is. I don't fully know what it is. I suspect a bit of it is India is quite messy. So business people find it frustrating to do business there whereas in china you just talk to the guy and everything happens I, d yeah. I don't know but but it strikes me that um uh, a lot of people are going to be going we can't be at the very least even if we're on the offshoring outsourcing business we can't be excessively dependent on one place uh and uh you know some of the stuff we'll bring back home because with automation in manufacturing labor costs aren't that bloody re relevant anyway um, you might argue if you have a very high pace of innovation, then you actually want your factory right next to the head office. So you can, you know, you can very rapidly change what you make. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and in any case, it's not like the labor costs are as low as they used to be. Uh, somebody did work out what it would cost to make an iPhone in the United States. It was something like 14 grand, wasn't it? No, well, I, you see, I, um, it depends how you do it, I think. Yeah. Because actually the labour component of the iPhone is pretty small now. And so, no, I mean, there are things, there are undoubtedly things, which would cost insanely more to make there. You know, I don't know what textiles would be or other things like that. 
Um, but but I, I, I've got a vague memory. You know, quite a lot of this, by the way, is probably a price that consumers would be willing to pay just for the knowledge that it was made locally and also for the knowledge that you, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, and for the company's own reassurance that they weren't, you know, they were far less at risk from, uh, uh, you know, extraneous events. Yeah. Um, to, I, I wanted to take another side step because um, there's a couple of sort of manholes we've skipped over that I thought were quite interesting. Um, and so one has permeated this whole thing, which is about Zoom. And I know you've been quite fanatical, or I'd say passionate about Zoom for a while. No, I, in fairness, I was I wasn't a, a bit of a, a voice crying in the wilderness. Yeah. In that I've been an advocate of uh, i mean not there are other video conferencing uh, solutions are available so you know blue jeans is very good when i've used it uh, there are a few other ones i've used which have been excellent um i'm not a huge fan of microsoft teams despite the pressure we get to use it um and um some some of them were i mean skype i don't know what microsoft did with skype but they seem to have crapped all over it well that's exactly what i wanted to kind of get your take on i wanted to i wanted to figure out in your opinion maybe just from a user interface perspective or maybe more than that why is it that zoom has really sort of caught the caught the golden snitch on this one whereas skype uh, hasn't received any attention at all um I actually think that the interesting thing is, this is really interesting because um, when Zoom started, okay, and, and all through its existence, it's been up against competing offerings from Microsoft, not so much Amazon, although you can kind of video call over uh, the, the Alexas, uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, Google, okay, every single big player plus Cisco, okay, have all been in this space. And yet, and indeed, their investors, when they went around looking for startup cash, uh, their investors, a lot of investors just said, look, what are you getting into this category for? It's already baked. It's done. Yeah, yeah. Right? And they were convinced for various reasons that there was still huge untapped potential, which I think they were undoubtedly, well, obviously right about. Um, but I would have agreed with them at the time that, that um, this is still heavily underused as a technology. And what they did was first of all it was built for the cloud which means that the heavy grunty processing work goes on in the cloud which means that one person's shit computer doesn't ruin the experience for everybody else i guess i mean I'm, you know uh, i i mean but but essentially making it cloud-based uh, was a huge advantage which also meant it worked in the browser so total idiots could click on a link they also didn't do the stupid Skype thing where one person had to call another like it was a phone call. Yes. They made it much more analogous to a meeting room. So you had the URL for the meeting, which was a work of genius, because it, it utilized something that people already knew how to do. Click on this. You know, yeah. if you don't know how to do that, you've probably been having a really tough time using the web <laughs> for the past 10 years, right? Um, it didn't have that stupid synchronicity requirement where, you know, every single time someone arranges a Skype call with me, you know, I, they ring me and then I miss the call and end up ringing them back and it's a total ass. Now, you imagine that multiplied by eight people and it'd be kind of shit. Yeah. Um, and they also did a few clever things. Gallery view, um, I think, uh, and the choice of view, the fact that it works well within the browser, the fact that it's link-based... Uh, the fact that there was a simple number 
for the meeting and the fact that until recently you didn't need a password or any crap like that. I mean, undoubtedly, some of their success came on the back of slightly lax security. But um, what you found was that people happily, given the choice between, I mean, most most business meetings aren't like, you know, you know, this is, you know, it's not like MI6, right? I mean, most, most of what we spend our time chatting about is not really hyper confidential. No. And when it is, you know it is. And so, you know, there were things you could do, like lock the meeting. And so, I mean, you know, okay, a few people got pawn bombed. I don't think it was, you know, it wasn't like a major breach. And so a lot of things about it, I think, were, it just made things, it got things across the crappiness threshold in about five different ways. And the quality, oh, by the way, the other thing they did, which they were definitely right about, now they weren't the first people to notice this, but quality of sounds more important than most other people. They did say most other people obsessed about the visual element. Okay. And actually the human brain is so good at decoding expressions. If you think about it in faces that you can, you can depict Abraham Lincoln with something like 20 dots. We go, that's Abraham Lincoln, you know, and he's looking happy. So we're so good at decoding visual stuff and we can cope with corruption of the picture. We can't cope with corruption of the sound. And what Zoom got right was they focused on the sound. It was sort of like sound first with vision as good as we can make it. And so essentially a meeting with slightly pixelated faces is perfectly tolerable, certainly for a time. A meeting with the sound breaking up is, is hopeless. There's another thing, by the way, about Zoom, which we don't even notice, which is not only do you get a picture, which holds your attention. Because if this were a conference call, to be honest, okay, if I'd been on the phone, A, I'd be sick of holding a phone. B, it would be a monaural conversation, which is difficult for the brain to process because we're used to hearing things in both ears. Um, so as a sound engineer, you'll like all this stuff. C, what we never noticed is that phone calls are massively degraded in terms of the sound quality because they're designed for kind of 1980s bandwidth where you tried to cram as many calls down a copper wire as you could. And... So when you lose all the timbre and nuance, I, I quite often record podcasts on a thing called Zencaster, which is probably even better than Zoom. But if you wear headphones and the other person has a reasonable microphone, this is pretty close to a conversation in a pub uh, in the dark, you know, even if we didn't have the pictures, in yeah. terms of the sound and the nuance we can get across and everything else. Whereas before... I mean, they focused on the picture and the sound was slightly sacrificed to picture quality, which I think was a fatal mistake. I noticed that happening a lot in advertising production, but I won't bemoan that too much. <laughs> oh, what, you mean the pictures are great and the, sound, the soundscape is dreadful, yeah. No, no, no I mean, I mean, no. in, at the moment, that isn't so much the case because you've got great sound studios, particularly in London, hoovering up all the work, like uh, 750 MPH, brilliant team, mm. uh, Waves, Jungle Studios, they're all great. Um, but in terms of music, more, which is obviously uh, my side of the business, it's very often. I spoke, I spoke to the creative director from Mullen Low just a couple of weeks ago, and he said very often the way it happens is they'll go to an edit and they'll hope the editor can think of something to drag from YouTube and pull under. By the way, this is one of the most extraordinary things because I think if you ask consumers um, to write an ad. I'm not saying consumers would be perfect. I think a lot of ordinary punters would produce an ad by doing music first. They'd think of a song that was really good and then they'd build an ad around it. Now, 
The reason that never happens in the ad industry, although as people like Neil French, by the way, proposed, you know, uh, Neil French did this one. Did I tell you about this last time? He did this fantastic experiment where you had to send him your 10 most memorable moments from all of film. And he got you to do this to make the point that something like 70% of them had really noticeable distinctive music. You know, one of mine was, you know, the singing of Men of Harlech in Zulu, for example. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, or, you know, there are films where, by the way, the only memorable bit, uh, you know, if, if I asked you to remember your, you know, your 10 most memorable bits of, um, uh, uh, let's say, Pulp Fiction, okay. Well, okay, in fairness, you might remember the thing when they're trapped in the basement of that kind of redneck store. But I've already um, got the surf guitar in my head. But you've already got the surf guitar in your head, exactly. Mm. Yeah. And the weird thing is, of course, the way you are, the way in which ads are written and approved, you're kind of not doesn't provide an opportunity for you doing it that way around. I'm not suggesting it should always be done that way around, obviously. Um, but you've gone muted again. Yeah, got you, got you again. Got, got again. Okay, okay. Yeah, it went unstable for a second. Um, mm. Without the use of the music, um, I don't think Curb Your Enthusiasm, say, would be uh, a third as popular as it is. Mm. And he more or less was determined from the off to get that particular theme song um, and also, you know, the, the extraordinarily clever use he makes of... There's quite a bit of Gilbert and Sullivan in it, isn't there? Yeah. Strange. Yes, it's, uh... she'll play three little girls from school or something will be put in. But he, he, there's something there which is, you know, there's a whole thesis to be written on the genius use of music in um, Curb, because it's gonna, it kind of keeps the whole thing rolling in a way that without it wouldn't quite work. Yeah, and there's also the the case that um, Seinfeld, of course, similar. Yes, absolutely, and. Um... A lot of what's done in uh, advertising is, of course, sync as opposed to, you know, we're, we're composers. We are also supervisors, but generally we compose music for picture. And uh, it's very popular because uh, it, to synchronize pre-existing music, I think part of it is because the music's already there. You don't need to brief someone, which is kind of cumbersome in a lot of people's uh, yeah. minds, particularly yeah. particularly producers. <laughs> but uh, um, but so, so because that's already there, it's very uh, attractive and also, you know, a couple of directors, well-known directors, made it very appealing to synchronise pre-existing music and give it a new flavour by putting it on the film. Scorsese does it a lot, Tarantino, as you said, did it a lot. Um, but it's made, well, I don't know what the, I'm, you know, I'm too young to kind of know what the price of syncing music to picture was in the 90s, say. But it's uh, it, can be, it can be really absurd now. So we were asked by um, someone at the Anne Partnership, can you get us a cost for... Paul Simon, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Um, and are you familiar with the difference between pub, uh, copyright and recording license? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously copyright is the abstract, just the song itself, publishing. And they said for publishing only with no lyric changes, we want half a million dollars as a base rate for negotiation. What? Yeah. 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 So that's, you know, and, and that's that eclipses <coughs> the production budget of most adverts I'm, I'm aware mm. of. So... And probably the, the the creative budget in general by comparison to the media budget. No, I know someone who's made a film called King Kennedy, which is all around the um, uh, JFK, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy um, period. Uh, and it's a fantastic film, brilliantly put together. 
Um, the problem is that without music, it's you know it doesn't quite work because you need the music of the period, and essentially you run up against just absolutely impossible demands. And it's an, it's an interesting question, by the way, about whether you could make that system more efficient. Uh, I think it's a really it's a really really interesting question whether you could you could. Um, I, you know, I don't quite know what the mentality here there is, but I suppose the argument is uh, this is only you know there there is the argument that obviously a song can become so indelibly associated with uh, a brand that it's therefore useless for other purposes. Equally, I have a very funny view here, which is uh, a weird one. I mean, in with Nail and I, they were able to get a Beatles track, weren't they? Because the George Harrison was co-producer of the film. And, and I think the Beatles have made a mistake being so precious with their legacy. Because they're going to become unknown to future well, generations. So the weird thing is, I mean, it doesn't make sense if you consider the relative fame of the people. But, but all of us would hear Brown-Eyed Girl or um, I'm a Believer by the Monkees. Yeah. Uh, just in in our surroundings, we'd hear it being played ten times more often than we'd hear, um, well, you know, any well, all Beatles tracks almost. I mean, they don't seem to be played very much on the radio. Weirdly, do they either? No, that? I'm not sure about why they're not played on the radio so much. I really because I don't know much about radio. It's a different world for me. But I do know that yes, the um, oh. Do you know if you probably do it at three o'clock? Three, three around three four. I don't know. I'll find out. I'll find out in a second. Carry on, sorry. My apologies. Um, the Beatles, yes, they... Uh, I don't know about the radio, but I know that they're incredibly expensive for sync, so they were famously synced on Mad Men for, I think, quarter of a million do uh, dollars. And um, they're, if you want to buy any of their vinyl LPs, a market which is having a huge resurgence, they're still the most expensive LPs at about £25 a pop. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm not sure why they're so expensive, but I imagine. I mean, oh, I'm not an economist. All, all I really know is sort of you know supply demand. There may be a theory of well, people will always want the Beatles, so they'll always buy it. Yeah, and it's it's a bit of a dangerous assumption because my kids should listen to more Beatles music than they do. Uh, you know, I, I mean, they're, you know, I'm quite pleased. They're quite eclectic in terms of because, of course, the whole thing of streaming means they don't really. Uh, obsess about what's current. They listen to current stuff, but they equally, they'll occasionally say, how do you know this song? And you go, because it came out in 1984, I remember it. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, and <clears throat> so, but <clears throat> I'm quite pleased that they're eclectic, but they don't, they probably listen, you know, they listen to more Stones than Beatles, probably. Well, well I, 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 approve of, I kind of approve of that. I honest. absolutely sympathise with yeah, that. I, I sympathise yeah, I sympathise with that. And um, I also think the Stones, uh, the Stones' business sense in their latter career has been just far, far stronger. So yeah, interesting. And uh, you know, they're still, you know, they're still, you know, they're still going, um, and they're they're much, much more easygoing about use of their music. I think, aren't they? Yes, and their branding is, is stronger. Everyone wears Rolling Stones t-shirts. Young people will happily be seen with one on, even though it came out in 1969. I know, you know? I know, yeah, I know. It's incredible, isn't it? one thing I wanted to ask you, actually, uh, because uh, I've listened to a bit of On Brand, by the way. Um, and uh, when are we getting more episodes of that? 
Oh, um, it's been a bit post. It's been a little bit postponed because they've had oddly. I mean, it should be easier to get hold of people. But I th no, the reason is there. There'll be a new episode coming out. It was just that one guy had to cancel, and we didn't have anybody waiting in the wings. I think. No, it's it, it's good content. It's really it made for really good listening. But while I was listening. I was interested, and this is relevant to the charts and the music thing, especially with streaming, uh, as to why it is that only in music can I... Is, music's the only marketplace I can think of where consumers are actually interested in the sales chart. Because, you know, the chart's number one. Number, that is basically just a sales board on the wall, isn't it? But just for music. But no one's really bothered about, you know, furniture, the charts, what's selling the most, or, you know, other set, uh, sectors of productivity. Do you know what I mean? It's a really interesting question. Hmm. I'm, I, nobody's ever thought of it. I mean, one, I suspect there's an awful lot of um, uh, needing to... I mean... Uh, needing to know what the latest thing is because it's like Zara it changes much faster than it does with furniture yeah. secondly there's probably a very strong herd effect where uh, because this has been demonstrated in experiments where people like what they know other people like yeah so that you could change people's music preference by simply telling them that a lot of people liked something Yes, in fact, in the late 90s, early 2000s, which is the last time I really remember being interested in the charts, and I don't mean that in a non-contrarian way. I mean when I was listening to radio on Sunday nights because I was driving around with my dad and stuff like that. Uh, you, They were able to get things like the Bob the Builder soundtrack to number one, a uh, theme tune, and, and weird novelty records by, like, the Cheeky Girls and stuff like that would get to number one. That, that's always been the case. Was it? I think it was it Imagine by John Lennon was knocked off the number one spot by Shut Up of Your Face, I think. <laughs> I'm fairly sure that's true. The weirdest one of all is during the Cuban Missile Crisis in the United States, when you were kind of 20 seconds from oblivion, um, it was... Uh, n the number one song was The Monster Mash. <laughs> So yeah, we're facing a total world existential crisis, and uh, uh, um, we're um, we're going to go out and buy a novelty single. So apparently, you know. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's what do you have? I mean, actually, a list of them would be interesting. Number one novelty. You had Grandma, didn't you? Yes. Um, you had that strange song about Lowry. There um, was there was the uh, Brig Harrison Rastrick band at one point got to number one with the floral dance. Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't remember that actually. No. Oh Christ! I mean, uh, and, and of course Ernie, the fastest milkman. Um, so there, there was basically yeah, there was an extraordinary thing of novelty singles. Which I mean, is it, 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 is it still going on? It went on fairly recently. There was a stupid thing with. Um, uh, uh, and, and of course, I mean, the, the, someone brilliantly said, uh, the the band with the greatest single dissonance between their name and their product being Black Lace and Agadoo. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, you know, Black Lace was an extraordinary waste of what could have been a brilliant band name Absolutely. on someone who was going to produce a thing, what is it, Grind Coffee Push... What's, what's it, something about the tr Shake the Tree, isn't it? Uh, push pineapple, shake the push tree. Push pineapple, yeah, thank you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Magic, we still remember that. Um, the, la the last one I remember along those lines was when uh, Baroness Thatcher died and uh, they got uh, Ding Dong the Witch is Dead to number one. That's it. 
Yeah, but even then, that that points to the fact of you know there seemed to be it it, it was it was of interest to push something to the top of a sales chart, and maybe because obviously we've been somewhat free associating on it. It's the maybe the interest in the music charts is because it's seen as a benchmark of what is cool, and what's cool is very important to lots of people. Brands, of course, being you know amongst them. And, and of course, I suppose the other thing is you need it's a. If you consider the volume of music, you need choice reduction, don't you? Yep. So if you're Spotify, it's recommendations or it's, you know, there's a radio station effectively attached to each song. Yeah. And uh, it's one of those things where how you solve the problem of abundance of choice. And um, uh, in music, it happens to be the charts. Yeah, that, or that, yes, that's right. That was the, the problem-solving Or, or of course, in music, what happens is people obsess about a genre. Now, you know, a friend of Dave Trott, brilliant ad guy, yeah. um, fantastic guy, always says that genre taste in music is stupid because the best of everything is really good and the worst of a genre is always shit, right? Yes, yes. And, he's, and what tends to happen, the first genre to get rejected are also three genre where the best of it is eternally brilliant, which would be metal, gospel, and country, okay? So, you know, the very best gospel is absolutely spectacularly good musically, you know, with a mixture of both, the combination of both high talent and huge enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the best of country is um, is song at its what is it three chords and the truth, you know. But it's song it's song at its purest, you know. Yeah. It's fantastic, and the best of metal is fabulous. But they're rejected really because of kind of user imagery, not because of musical quality. Oh, what? Because uh, countries associated uh, you know, with it, you know metal 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 heads, country fans, and gospel people are out of the kind of cool mainstream. You know, unless you live in Nashville or something. But indefinitely, yeah. <laughs> indefinitely, yeah. And so, so, so the genre selection is stupid. So to some extent, popularity isn't terrible because, you know, you've had Kenny, uh, you know, thingy, Rogers getting to the top. You know, you get country pop crossover. You get everything else. Um, you know, if you think about Starbucks, for example, okay, the way they solve their problem is, A, you have a menu. Now... I think someone worked out there are 87,000 coffees you can have at Starbucks. Yeah. And it's probably one of those cases with two very, very long tails in that, you know, flat white or a grande latte, okay, um, you know, probably between them, I don't know, they might account for like 10% or 15%. And on that list of 85,000 possible variants, there are probably 40,000 drinks, which nobody has ever ordered in the history of Starbucks. You know, it wouldn't be that difficult to do that. Would it? I've always wanted to spend this, by the way, of, you know, totally unique things. And I've always wondered secretly whether, you know, it might be fun to totally screw over Sainsbury's by just going in 25 times and buying like a case of vintage Bollinger and a hundred pot noodles, you know, so that their algorithm would start going, oh, you know, we're clearly seeing a trend emerging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, because you, you could literally put it you know, with Starbucks, I'm sure if you ordered some weird combination, you could get some thing to signal the fact that there's been a 20,000% increase in the orders of oat 
uh, of an oat flat white with a mixture of almond and so and so. You know, if you order that combination, you could completely create a kind of weird statistical anomaly. Well, that that plays right into a, 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 a huge branch of your thinking, which is that rationalism isn't always uh, the optimal solution. Because in the in the instance that you're describing there, the rational solution is this is getting ordered a lot. Let's stock an awful lot more of it because the trend is on the way up. Yeah, you got it exactly. Yeah, so it has a huge knock-on effect on distribution. Yeah. Uh, which is, um, and distribution has a huge knock-on effect of sales. And all of this leads to the fact, by the way, that like most other patterns, nothing's linear. I mean, this is, by the way, this brings us back to coronavirus, which is, you have this calculation of R naught, which is the average um, uh, transmission rate the, uh, of the virus. And of course, it's an average. Now, what we don't know and what we need to know is what's number one in the spreading category. In other words, what was the incident which led to the greatest level of spread? Because if you got rid of that and 200 similar types of behavior, you'd probably solve the problem without universal lockdown. By which I mean, to take any two extreme cases, building work in the sunshine probably has an incredibly low i mean guessing here but i think it's a safe assumption an incredibly low likelihood you know builders don't generally snog each other when they meet um uh you know they get on with their own shit and they've got quite a lot of space to work in not difficult to go and isolate to a degree that you know the bloke in the crane is miles from everyone else um and it's kind of outdoorsy yeah and there seem to be fairly you know fewer cases of outdoor transmission except in crowds like football crowds yes um on the other hand if you have uh, you know a coprophiliac orgy at a ski resort you know skiing is absolutely disgusting i think they really should you know clamp down on it um then uh, you know that's likely to be a super spreading event where if only one person's affected uh, you know, you're going to have a hell of a lot of people who are not only affect, infected themselves, but then all go back to different countries. Yes. Uh, providing, you know, making trace, you know, all those things become really, really difficult. And so the interesting thing is, you know, it's probably the same case, which is most human activity is, you know, the typical human on the typical day is pro- might well be once they've infected their own family, um, as it were. Or you know, sorry, or, you know, once you exclude their family, they're probably outside the, the typical family is probably R equals 0.3. And then there are weird events like a buffet at a conference or tube, tube trains. It looks like the New York subway basically explains uh, a, a, a lot of the a lot of the disproportionate problem in New York or some you know significant amount of it. And so that's one of those you know elevators might be another thing, you know. Um, you know, it's a very enclosed space used by a very large number of people quite often under conditions of crowding. And so um, if we knew what those were, you could place, you know, you could basically go, okay, there are green behaviours, which you can carry on doing what you did beforehand with a little bit of wearing a mask. And then there are orange spaces, which is here, you've got to wear a mask, you can't have more than blah, 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 blah. And then red behaviours, which you've got, Airports are kind of fucked, aren't they? I mean, you know, it says, because the client Heathrow said there's no way of practicing social distancing in an airport. 
No. The whole uh, way an airport's designed is effectively for people flooding through in close proximity. Yeah, I really don't know what to make of it because, again, this, this whole thing's only been with us for, in the grand scheme of things, a month and a half in the UK. And so I've noticed everyone get everyone's starting to get fatigued with the lockdown now because I think we're about six or seven weeks into it. And, you know, initially it was projected for about a 12-week uh, total lockdown, something like that. But people are starting to get fatigued with it. Um, I'm not sure what the world's going to look like I don't, in a I year. Don't, do, you, do you mind it? I don't mind it at all. I mean, I'm... Twen- I'm genuinely, genuinely, if they said, oh, it's going to go on for another six weeks, I'm going, oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, six weeks is fine by me. I think what wouldn't be fine with me is... Um, Six months in exactly the same conditions. In fact, I'm reminded of. Uh, are you? Familiar? Oh, have you got a gun? That makes a big. Di- a gun makes a big difference because no. yeah, I, I totally <laughs> sympathise with you if you don't have a gun. Um, uh, and that because that you know having some having sunshine. Because if you're sitting in the sunshine, even if you're working, it's a bit like being on holiday. I mean, that's the irony about that. You know, if I go out in the garden on a sunny day and I do my emails, I've got this kind of weird tent construction, so you can see your laptop screen. Yeah. Um, but it, it weirdly, um, you know, it's it, freedom. That's what I mean. Freedom of space is in place as important as freedom of time in a way. Yeah. And, um, uh, but, um, uh, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's complicated because I'm 50, what am I? 54. So I've done a lot of travel anyway. So to be honest, there'd be a few places in the world where if you told me if you can never go back, I'd, uh, I'd be a bit upset. Um, but it's, you know, I don't feel a sense of deprivation because, you know, I can't go to Magaluf, you know, next week or whatever it might be. Um, uh, the the commute and the fact that actually I find a lot of work more eff- more effective and more enjoyable. Um, uh, and and I've done, so, you know, I mean, the, my productivity in terms of ability to write has gone up by a factor of three. Um, my meeting productivity is the only thing that's a pain in the ass is that while you're doing six hours of Zoom calls, people are still sending you emails. Yes. That's the thing that's a pain in the ass because you end the day and you go, oh, shit, I've got 90 of these to deal with. Yeah. Um, but in in most respects, I don't find it, I find it more productive than less in terms of working output. Um, it means you can always get hold of people because you know where they are. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, there's a hell of a lot about it, which I don't want to lose when the thing ends. Yes, me and my flatmate have felt the same in terms of, I mean, we've just felt a lot more stable because, you know, we can get more sleep because we don't have to be on the commute and the commute home, which minimizes time after work and, you know, all the usual stuff. But um, I think in my case, you know, I'm in a relatively young business, so a, a, an awful lot of my... Uh, an awful lot of my time is taken up by trying to scare up new business. Yes, uh, I, no, no, yeah. And you can imagine people are I'll not you parting really with their money. There, yeah. uh, which we discovered because of my weird Zoom obsession a year ago, and a year and a half ago. Yeah. You can't win business over the phone. You can't win business over email in a kind of professional services context. You can win business over video calls. Yes. Yeah, I had a suspicion because it's basically a meeting, and we've always found meetings yeah. are where people give you the order. Now, where that's huge, by the way, um, we're on the Greenwich Meridian and we both speak English. The potential for the UK to win business from overseas, both East and West. Um, you know, if I were South Africa, okay, if I, if I were Cyril, I would invest hugely in broadband and free Zoom for the whole country, okay? I go to Zoom and I go, okay, we'll pay you, you know, 50 million a month. 
and you give Zoom to anybody with a South African email address or IP address. Yeah. And um, uh, w the reason for that is that the amount of money they can make, if you think about it, uh, selling shit in that time zone while speaking English uh, relative to, you know, their existing wealth could be absolutely enormous. But I mean, we, you know, we do business. I, I had a debate before coronavirus started, which is, do you think we should actually go over to a work two days a week? We work from home from like seven till eight. Okay, two 11-hour days, Monday and Wednesday, and then you don't, you know, you, you don't work for half, you work from home on Friday and you only work for half of it. And people said, why, you, why would you do that? And I said, because the time you're free to talk to people in California is more valuable than being in the office at lunchtime on a Friday. Yes. And similarly, you know, if you're willing to get up at seven o'clock and have a chat with some Australians or some people in Singapore or, or Wuhan or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's more valuable than being, you know, bumming around in Friday lunchtime. Yeah, yeah. I think there are people in the city, aren't there? There used to be people when I worked in Canary Wharf who effectively kind of worked a different time zone. And um, uh, I always thought that was a really interesting existence. Yes. And so maybe we'll see entire, you know, you could see, uh, I don't know, for Ogilvy, the sea containers, or working from home, you've got the, uh, you've got the, Singapore team and you've got the Tokyo team and you've got the LA team or people who just correspond with their time zones <coughs> Yeah And so yeah, you, you you could you could have an element of that which is you know I'd be happy doing both to be honest because if I don't have you know as I said, you know seven o'clock You know at 7 30 a.m. Meeting in London means I've got to get up at 5 30 now as someone who's a genetically a night owl I think there is some scientific basis for that, that people yes. have different preferences. I'm a huge night owl. So I find getting up at 5.30 in the morning unbelievably difficult because, you know, the time I'm most likely to finish writing something is one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and I think what it is, is that if you stay up late, it creates what Paul, um, Paul Graham uh, calls, um, uh, you know, maker time. In other words, it's uninterrupted time where you can genuinely immerse yourself in something. And I find most of that between sort of, you know, eight and one in the morning. And, um, yeah, and by the way, if I'm going to work from eight till one in the morning, which I quite often do, why the hell can't I have, you know, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. off to sit in the sunshine? Because if you think about it, when you sign up to an office job, you sign away five sevenths of your daylight. Not yes. quite, because you're on holiday a bit, but pretty much. Okay, I mean, we do have a balcony at work where I suppose you could sit and work, but I mean, you're you're sacrificing a hell of a lot of kind of fresh air and daylight. Yeah, it's often something I saw people bemoaning uh, in the winter months. Uh, you get up in the dark and then you come home in the dark. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, and, you, and that is that is uh, those three months where that happens are really grim, aren't they? And it'd be worth a bit of historical analysis for why we ended up this way. My suspicion is it has something to do with agriculture or early factory production. You know, that's the hours of work. The school holidays and the university holidays are certainly driven by agriculture. Sweden's weird because their main holiday month is June, July, months of June, July, not July, August. Yeah. Because it's all around midsummer, and presumably the I don't know whether the harvest was different. But it's very clever because Swedes can go and book holiday property in June. You see, when yep. it's dirt cheap, that's why you've never you've never heard anybody complain. You know, I couldn't get on the beach. All the Swedes had taken the sun lounges. 
Yeah, Maybe they're not so many of them as well. But there you go. So you could be the. But they uh, go on holiday at a different time to everybody else, which is kind of genius. Maybe you could deliver that advice. I don't know. Maybe maybe you get to bend the ear of politicians every now and again. You could. I mean, uh... it would be interesting to stagger school holidays. Would be an interesting thing to do. A lot of it's just the coordination problem. Why, you know, why is it? I mean, uh, it, it's fair to say we've got to be careful about this because working nights apparently is kind of and shift work is kind of bad for you. Yeah. Um, there seems to be some evidence that you know working nights, although it may just be that you develop bad habits as a result. Um, I don't know, but it does seem that it sort of messes with your body clock to an extent. But um, the yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, okay, you know, th there were different working patterns in very hot countries, like the Spanish behaviour. If you go to Spain, you know, eating very late. Um, which, by the way, is further exacerbated by the fact that Spain is on completely the wrong time zone, okay? Um, uh, because Franco, to impress Hitler, mm. when he met him, moved bloody Madrid onto Berlin time as a kind of gesture. The Portuguese have experimented with moving to Spanish time and abandoned it because it's stupid. <laughs> so the Spanish lose a hell of a lot by having this totally crazy... Um, where are you going? Yes, please. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Actually, grab that. Um, uh, just in the same way that Franco made Athletic Bilbao, changed their name to Atletico Bilbao. Yeah. Um, he, he did this kind of crazy thing which, uh, which moved them onto a totally inappropriate time zone. Uh, and, um, uh, but but um, and that's also driven by the heat, because before air conditioning. Uh, what's very interesting, by the way, when I talked about freedom of place... Uh, one of the interesting reasons for the decline in American productivity, according to this economist, uh, is the invention of air conditioning. And what it's meant is that instead of basically saying the, the dirty secret of the United States is that, with a few exceptions, California being an obvious one, okay, the climate, uh, and personally, I love the I love the climate of kind of, you know, the Pacific Northwest, but I'm a Brit, okay? Yeah, so I've yeah. kind of evolved for that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. The climate in places like New York is shit for half the year, right? Yes. And um, it's too fucking hot in the summer, and it's ghastly when it gets really cold. I mean, it's vicious, you know, yeah. and really, really viciously cold, the way I've never encountered in Britain. Maybe in that 1970, what was it, the... There was one winter, wasn't there? Um, but the the extraordinary thing is that, of course, a lot of places were too damn hot rather than being too damn cold. And air conditioning, Phoenix had a population of 35,000 in 1930. It's now got a population of about 3 million. Air conditioning has made it perfectly tolerable, indeed pleasant, to live in those places. Because, I mean, Phoenix is rather fun, like Austin, Texas. You know, it's a bit too hot during the day. People go out in the evenings. Now, what that's meant, according to this guy, is that Americans, rather than um, moving to the place of greatest economic pro uh, productivity, are moving for the climate more and for the work less. Yeah. Now, eventually, you'll have places like Atlanta and Phoenix will be just as great in terms of wealth generation as places like New York. Yeah. But the, t uh, the tendency for people to go, if you think about it, okay, you've got cheaper property and you, and you, because particularly, particularly true, actually, you've got cities that are, air, that are kind of late developing cities. Well, one, they were designed around the car. 
so you don't have to live particularly centrally because phoenix is glorious you know the roads you basically have huge wide roads sweeping right into the middle of town with synchronized traffic lights wow and so you you've got like a triple win which is i'll get better weather and I'll get a fairly good salary and I'll get insanely cheaper property. Because one of the interesting things, Phoenix, if you take Phoenix, Vegas, Houston, okay, those sort of new developing cities, Atlanta, because they're not based around a port or a, um, okay, which most historical cities were, they can expand in all four directions. Ah, uh, they don't have like a frontier on so one you, side. You, you, don't, you don't have this great big line where mm. effectively the centre is somewhere close to the shoreline and everything else is concentrically around you. And, you know, to be absolutely honest, you could live 15 miles from Phoenix and you could, you know, you could get in your Tesla, set it on autopilot and pretty much drift in, you know. Um, I, I love the place. Have you ever been there? Fantastic. So, uh, if you're a Brit, okay, the, the interesting thing I think about the States is that um, Brits tend to like... New York's fantastic. I mean, you're, you're a bit of a soulless git if you don't like New York. But at the same time, it is just kind of London on acid. Yeah. You know, you know it, it's a European city and, you know, at a huge scale. But I think what Brits like when they go to the US is weirdly very American cities like Chicago and LA, which objectively you know you could argue were worse than new york but on the other hand it's the contrast we like and the what i loved about phoenix was just this contrast you know where you every single european city is predicated on the need to cram everything into as small a space as possible and in phoenix it really is the case of you've got a city but you know you go into your hotel room and it's you discover it's a suite you got to order a suite and they yeah. go now all the rooms are sweet what suites what the hell you know we've got so much space <laughs> yeah. we just thought we'll chuck a few extra rooms on and your parking space they're yeah. actually little spaces between the parking spaces for you to open your door and to make it easier for you to park because hey let's just waste another 15 percent. and it's so wonderful so they've got this kind of european uh, cities where everything's just too small they've got this kind of the uh, united arab emirates kind of approach to excess yeah. it's like well it's, it's oh what well, about another 10 of those what's the next door guy done he's done uh, we'll do 15 you know okay it's yeah yeah. So um, we're about to come to an hour and a half, and there's all as always. There's way more I would like to talk to you about. So um, we'll have to uh, do another one of these in a couple of months when um, the timeline is clearer. See what's happening. Um, uh, I, you know, the other weird it... thing about Phoenix, by the way, is oh, that yeah. that thing of it. Yes, but it's a dry heat, which everybody jokes about, is absolutely true. By which I mean, you know, if I'm in Singapore, I find the heat oppressive because it's heat and humidity. Actually, I wander around Phoenix at 100 degrees and I'm pretty much fine. Because you're not? No, there's no, there's no, there's no problem with that. You just keep yourself a bit hydrated and it's, yeah. uh, it's actually really, really nice. Yeah, I was in the most unbelievable humidity of my life last year. I was in Mexico in July. Um, it, it, oh, uh, on the coast? It was at the, uh, I can't remember the name of the Aztec ruins. Um, I know the one you mean. Yeah, my daughter's yeah. been there, yeah. Yes, it was It was the most appallingly uh, uncomfortable experience in service of great culture I've had. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it, it is, because what it does is, it, I mean, apparently you get, friends of mine who moved to Singapore say you get used to it after about four weeks. But the trouble is, I haven't got four weeks to go on holiday. No. So, <coughs> and, um, and that's an interesting question, by the way, of do we, uh, you know, we talk, you know, everybody talks about immigration, okay, and migration and freedom of movement. At what point we have to do something about tourism, maybe the coronavirus has solved this problem. But if you think about it, 
if you have people doing short-haul tourism, there's quite a bit. After your third or fourth visit, first of all, you assume if you go to Italy from the UK, you're going to go more than once. So you explore a bit more widely. And then on your third or fourth visit, it gets quite nuanced, you know, because your friend said, actually, Luca's quite nice, or there's a mm, small town yeah. just outside Luca. No, no, no. And it actually becomes a bit kind of fractal, you know. Okay. Now, if you take long-haul one-off tourism, so you literally have a newly enriched middle class in the East who are all going to Paris on the assumption that they're only going once, mm. then essentially you end up with 27 million people all trying to see the Mona Lisa because you know, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing this is not this is not a criticism of what you might call ignorance in that there are cities in China with a population of 10 million I've never heard of them right if you ask me to say what's famous in China I would answer like a total moron terracotta army great wall forbidden city um uh Oh, and the, the wet fish market. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, if you're feeling a bit brave. Um, uh, there must be something else. I mean, yeah, I'm sure, uh, panda. Yeah, let's yeah. see a panda, right? Now, okay, that's a total moron's list to what's in, in, in terms of what's interesting about China. It really is cretinous, useless list. It tells you nothing about China seeing those things. But if you told me I can only go to China once, I, you know, for two weeks, I'd feel a huge kind of urge to see at least three of those things and i'd know nothing about anything else and so that's the you know so in the same way you know japanese people who go you know houses of parliament tower bridge right you've got to see those and then if you're japanese or korean you want to see the loch, loch ness because you've heard of the loch ness monster because they're kind of obsessed with sea creatures as yeah. you know um and uh, and you might go to edinburgh and uh, that's kind of it and you can go, well, long-haul one-off tourism is basically idiocy, isn't it? It's just selfie stick rubbish. As you know, I've often wondered, do you need legislation which is, yeah, you know, um, you actually, um, uh, you can't actually buy a return ticket anywhere. You've got to buy four of them. Four of them, mean? as because, in you, get, you well, have to go well, okay, four on times. On your first visit, yeah, okay, you know, yeah. I, I have to admit, I've never actually been to, I've see, obviously seen the Statue of Liberty. I've never bothered to go to it. I have been to the top of the Empire State Building, I think. Yes, I have. Yeah, of course I have. Been to the top of the Sears Tower in Chicago. You know, so you have to do a bit of the, if you go to Pisa, you've got to look at the Leaning Tower. Yeah. And what I'm saying is that if you made people buy four return tickets to the same place, then at least on their second, third and fourth visits, they'd start to be getting something of the, because, you know, I've been to the US a lot. And in fairness to my U.S. tourism, yeah, I've been to the Grand Canyon, although in fairness, Grand Canyon is very big, so you don't exactly create a, you know, an obstacle to other people seeing it. It's not like the Mona Lisa, right? Um, uh, but I've also been to things like the Wisconsin State Fair and Taliesin North and West, the Frank Lloyd Wright buildings, and you know, I've you know I've been to Phil you know, the market in Philadelphia and a baseball stadium in Milwaukee, and that's that's what tourism is really about, which is getting under. You know, the rest the rest of it's postcards yes getting into the actual getting uh, into the sort of fabric of the thing and going oh that's funny my, my dad my dad only went to the u.s once he only traveled long haul once he's still alive he only traveled long haul once in his life and he said you know the most interesting thing obviously he saw the golden gate bridge my brother lived in berkeley at the time and they took a photograph of the Golden Gate bridge i'm not suggesting you should go no no we're not going to see that but he said you know, you know the most interesting things about the trip were things like someone filling a car with gas while eating a burger 
okay, which you just never see in Britain. No one would eat while gassing up their car. No, but those, that's when maybe I first the... went to the US, by the way, the really novel thing was drinking coffee in a car. In a car. So this was 1994, I guess, maybe five. Yeah. Uh, long road trip with an American friend from Connecticut to North Carolina to the Outer Banks. And they had cup holders. And you stopped at a gas station. And when you got gas, you got coffee. And um, you drank coffee and put it... Uh, sorry, this is totally ridiculous, isn't it? But you've got to bear in mind that cup holders were less of a thing in Britain because automatic cars were less common. And if you've got to change gear, you know, and all that stuff. But it, genuinely, I was, I was actually sitting there going... I'm drinking coffee in a car. This is yeah. no, okay. That's not weird. Now that was seriously weird in 1994. That was like I've never done this before. It I mean, of course, wrong. to uh, to the Italians, drinking coffee out of a takeaway cup is still preposterous. It's preposterous. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> they're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, uh, and the French are funny like that because if you are if you go into a French French coffee is shit actually, unlike Italian coffee, which is uniformly brilliant. Yes. Um, but if you ask for a coffee to go in France, they regard you as some sort of barbarian. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like uh, again, one of my someone I get someone I know who is uh, another civil servant. He was saying that uh, if you uh, ordered a cappuccino after midday in Italy, they'd look at you as scant. As oh, if yeah, you were... yeah, yeah. No, no, because <laughs> it's a kind of children. I mean, you ha you might have it for breakfast, and it's a sort of children's drink. Basically. That's right, yeah, whereas we have it non-stop in the UK and also in these huge sort of pint-sized cups of hot milk with a bit yeah, of espresso. <laughs> so no, Starbucks has opened in Italy, interestingly, and it was the biggest marketing challenge. And what they did was very clever. They said, we can't really compete on coffee. And it's a different kind of thing. So they took over really, really extraordinary large venues and made it kind of theatre. Oh, wow. So it was, a it was a clever, very clever lateral response. So they'd take over something which was like an old pumping station and you'd have a sort of two-story thing, which was enormous. So Italians would like to meet there because of the kind of setting, you know. And yeah. Having said that, it's one thing my Italian friend did tell me, he said, we all drink black coffee, but we put quite a lot of sugar in it. Yes, Actually. yeah. It's one that, of the that old thing of black coffee without espresso without sugar... Um, it happens, but it uh, tends to have a bit of sugar. It's like a well-kept secret. But yeah. I, like, I like the idea of the Starbucks having to make a big show of it because it reminds me of what Eddie Izzard said about when they built Disney Disneyland Paris. And they said, yeah, so you have to make the castle bigger. They've actually got them here. They've got them. Brilliant. I've never heard that. That's fantastic. I thought here's a little um, here's a little tidbit that I thought might interest you because obviously we'll have to wrap up soon. I've no doubt you've got stuff to do. Um, was that uh, you know obviously Disney acquired 20th Century Fox and a bunch of properties with it. Um, yeah. And uh, this is more, I suppose, about this is just a point on Disney's willingness to spend in inordinate amounts of money and to get returns on it. You know they've got an, an Avatar ride in Disneyland in the US. I didn't know this till recently. The the Avatar ride cost twice as much as the film to make. Yeah, yeah. The film was about 230, 250 million and the ride cost half a billion. Good grief. Yeah, yeah. But uh, That's a very it's a very interesting thing, which is the whole Disneyland thing supposedly came about because Walt asked the question. Uh, he wanted during Fantasia to get was it smells pumped into the cinema? It was something like that. Yeah. He wanted some sort of surround effect. And they said, you can't do that because you can't control the cinemas. 
Yeah. And he said, I don't like that because I want to control the experience in 3D, not just in 2. And then he got to thinking, okay, so what's the 3D equivalent of a film like? And then he then suddenly realized, well, if you have the whole of Disney in 3D, you obviously can't have pirates mixing with Bambi because that would be kind of weird. Right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 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 Give me a <laughs> bloody deer to death. Right. So you can't have that. So then you need to have different in, in different worlds. So the yeah. whole thing arose from a kind of thought experiment about 3D cinema. So it was kind of like the first experiential marketing. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, a wonderful guy. I mean, genuinely. I mean, we Brits need to study him more for the, you know, the you know the sheer wondrousness of it all. Yeah, Brit I think I think uh, brands as well, and uh, in, just in terms of the idea of investing in ridiculous yet creative ideas and seeing huge returns, because Disney. Uh, what do they turn over? Something like three hundred billion a year, something ridiculous. Yeah, because what people want, as people get richer, is they want amazing. Yeah, and this is what the great mistake that, that I think most companies are making, which is they're trying to do basically let's make more crappier things at a slightly lower price. Yeah, more efficient, less amazing. And so you know, you look you look at what's really happening. Okay, um, um, you know, American beer was very, very efficient. There was an economic paper basically lambasting the German beer industry for being inefficient on account of its Reinhutzgebot legislation and its extreme levels of inefficient localism. <laughs> and I read this whole paper, and there was one acknowledgement that maybe German beer might have a superior quality. Remember, this was written in the 1980s. Now, yeah. if you went to the US, it was... The U.S. has probably gone from the least interesting brewing nation in the world to the most interesting brewing nation in the world, precisely because it abandoned that kind of focus on, you know, economies of scale. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that would be if you had to... I know you did your Ten Commandments from Alchemy. Did you use Ten Commandments or was it just... I think there were 11, yeah, you're right, yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't know if one of them was, um, for goodness sake, stop, be stop being so obsessed with cost-cutting and efficiency. It's not the only solution. No, no, no. It's the, it's the easiest solution because it's easiest to quantify and, and it fits most neatly with pre-existing theories of what people want. Yes, they want to spend um, less. But if you, okay, Dyson, you know, you know, if you come to me and said, do you want to, do you think there's a market for a 500 pound hairdryer? I go, well, maybe in can, you know, yeah. uh, you know, may, you know, but basically I would have told Dyson to piss off. You know, it's an absolute absurd notion. I mean, particularly true of the vacuum cleaner, which was a real distress purchase, and where everybody who was actually rich enough to spend 700 quid on a vacuum cleaner would pres be presumed to have a bloody cleaner anyway. Yeah. You know, employer cleaner. So, uh, you know, it, it's interesting the extent to which, uh, you know, people people don't actually want what logic suggests they, they want. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, and then we could easily circle back on the Henry Ford quote that everyone trots out. But, uh, faster horse, yeah. Faster horses. So, um, right, well, um, I don't know if Anna told you that uh, the reason I, wa I was asking you to record this was because we've started our own podcast series like everyone else has under the sun. Brilliant. But, uh, but um, it's, it's audio and video, if you're okay with that. Yep, absolutely fine. And so the only thing is, because this will have been recorded locally on your device, are you able to... I'll, I'll email you the link. It takes a while to come in because Zoom's got to process it. Yes. But I'll email you the link to everything as soon as... Or I can email you the files, whichever you prefer. Uh, the files will be good. Um, and uh, yes, I don't know, do I... Do you... You have my email address, don't you? Yeah, the only other thing I was going to suggest, by the way, for anybody yep. in the sound business, is yep. there's a podcast on... A podcast on 
how to broadcast from home. Yeah. What's it called? Because one of the things that occurred to me is a load of people were weirded out by having to do this. Now, just by accident, I've done a lot of podcasts and I've made a few radio series. Yeah. So I'm familiar with the idea of talking to a microphone to an imaginary audience, as it were, yeah. which to most people feels really, really weird when you first do it. And actually, my contention would be if I were recruiting people for Ogilvy now, I'd have a four-day training course on basically what you might call broadcasting from everywhere with a bit of, you know, a bit of um, uh, cinematography, uh, you know, a bit of filmmaking grammar, a bit about, you know, recording equipment, high quality microphones, you know, lighting, etc. Yeah. And um, I'd, um, uh, I, 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 cause, because my argument would be that's becoming a form of literacy now or numeracy. You know, there's basically literacy, numeracy and filmeracy which is your ability to put together and deliver with your own kit a tolerant, you know, and there must be, I don't know enough about it. And I need to learn, I'm going to do spend three days finding out. It, I bought a drone the other day and there's just a tip when you read about drone filming, it's actually much better filming things going backwards when more and more things are coming into view than filming going forwards when effectively you're just zooming in on something. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the pullback shot or even if you're getting really clever, the dolly zoom, yeah. you know, those kind of shots, which are, which are better. Now, had I not read that sentence, once I read it, it was obvious. Um, but there, there must be sort of 20 or 30 tips to sort of, you know, reasonable continuity editing, you know, which, okay. In, I'm not asking everybody to become you know, Roger Deakins, right? But I'm just saying that um, if you can bring people up to a tolerable, you know, just as you, you know, when you teach kids to write, you know, they might become Shakespeare, but they probably won't, but at least they can make themselves understood. Yes. And I think, you know, one of the things I feel very strongly about is that your ability to use technology to communicate in the best mode possible um, is going to be a significant determinant of, well, actually, it's an interview skill now, isn't it? Really? Yes, and I even found that this technology is uh, helping to clean up my speech patterns because when I was editing the first few podcasts, I noticed how much I go, uh, and, uh, and that becomes really wearying to listen to yourself do that, so you have to monitor your own speech real-time in editing. Of course, yeah, editing yourself on film must be maddening because you notice all those things. It's, it's, I mean, I've never noticed any of those, by the way, and you said so it's not that extreme, trust me. Well, I presume you as well, in your experience... You've become quite a fluid speaker because you've been public speaking for a you long time. Mean, that's the truth of the matter. All these things, I'm not, I'm not taking the 10,000 hours rule, but I'm saying that all those things become easier if you do them a lot. The other thing with public speaking is if you don't do it a lot, it's too scary. Yes. It's a really, really weird thing I noticed, which is that I'd come back after August and the beginning of September, not having done anything for maybe seven or eight weeks. And the first talk you had to give in sort of September the 10th, you're bricking it. Yes. And I spoke to other people like, you know, Paul Feldwick and other people in advertising, other people who do this. And they said, no, it's exactly the same with me. If I don't do it for eight or 10 weeks, I'm frightened to do it. And you've got to kind of force yourself back into the saddle. Briefly, which is you... probably why the same people give a lot of talks, actually. Yes. Which is that there isn't the intermediate, the average doesn't exist. You either do it a lot or you do, you do it very rarely. 
Yes, a very steep distribution curve. Because I, I noticed that in the office. You know, the, in fairness, my colleagues are pretty good and are doing it themselves because I've encouraged them. But the one, the one engagement you could never foist on anybody else was a speaking engagement. People would find any reason to get out of it. Because fair's fair, if you only do it once a year, it's fucking terrifying. Yes. It's still a bit frightening, by the way. I'm not suggesting I waltz on the stage and go, hi, another fine day. If you stop being nervous at all, you should probably stop doing it because you no longer care. Yes. So you have to be a bit nervous, but there's a big difference between, ooh, mild unease and puking in the toilet. Well, I think, <laughs> I think, uh, I think um, <coughs> Jordan Peterson, who did something like 200 speaking engagements to promote his book, said uh, it's like a tightrope act without a net if you're doing it properly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you take notes? Do you do a script or do you, do you pre-associate? Um, I use slides to create the structure. But you, you tend to go off the cuff? Yeah, I, 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 I think it's good to go off the cuff and not to over-rehearse. Yes. Because it's a bit like the difference between live opera and recorded or live Formula One. Yes. I think people pay more attention if they have the feeling that anything could happen. I think that's why football is so attractive to people. Yeah, because anything could happen. Yes, yeah. that's right, yeah. I've noticed pe uh, some people I've spoken to on this series have said, can you send me the questions in advance? And I'm happy to do that, but I prefer not to because it feels like I'm allowing them to prepare a speech rather than to respond to questions. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that, that, that risk is there. And actually, by the way, all those ams and ers and things, um, uh, they're, not, uh, they're not all bad, in fact. Um, because, uh, you know, as you said, if um, people who s present too slickly uh, weirdly tend to lose your attention because you think, OK, well, what they're basically doing is, you know, it's a bit like if you had a person on stage reading from a book. Yes. Your mind would drift off really quickly because you basically, I know what's going to happen here. It's you may as well be reading the book. <laughs> you know, I might as well read this book myself. Whereas if you think they might go into some weird discursive thing or... Or, you know, make a gaffe, maybe. It just holds your attention a bit more. Yes, brilliant. Um, look, we've done almost two hours, which is very Fantastic. Okay, I, I better stop now, so I'll pause, the, I'll stop the recording. Speak soon. Bye-bye, well, and thanks very much, Nick. Cheers, Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.